following podcast contains mature language and spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. I've been doing this subset of podcasts since 2020. I'm in the double digits, and it's remarkable how little progress I've made on this thing. So I'm going to try to get my A's in gear and do a speed round. Airwave figured into one of the early comic books that I bought, DC Comics Presents. I still don't know why I bought it. It wasn't very good. I have a number of prejudices that came out of that, not the least of which was that I tended not to want to buy any more Superman books because I disliked it so much. Airwave has an ugly comic costume. He has stupid powers. He is distantly related to Hal Jordan. I still have a very mild nostalgia for the character, but mostly I think he sucks and I don't want anything to do with him. So we get back to Superboy, which by this point is about a year in. And one of the big selling points is that this is a clone and therefore was created by an evil organization that does not have a moral code. And so he's reliant on Titans team members to help to inform that. Uh, for instance, at one point, he decides to just take a whole bunch of money from a bank with the intention of returning it later on, but using it to set himself on a nice pad and stuff and having to have Bunker show up to tell him that's wrong. Also, it's revealed the Bunker is the guy who has the tattoos and influences Connell to get his Superman barcode tattoo. So I guess the combination good influence, bad influence in that respect. Eventually, Scott Lobdell gives way to Tom DeFalco writing the book, which nobody asked for. <laughs> Let's remember, Tom DeFalco was one of the guys who helped to sabotage Jim Shooter's new universe and then eventually take the guy's job as a consequence of having sabotaged the new universe. And let's not forget that Tom DeFalco's big idea was to have a um, team of football players act is sort of like an A-team with one super-powered member doing a riff on the Golden Age character Captain Triumph and the whole thing was called Kickers Incorporated. This is the guy who fostered a climate of cronyism that helped to bankrupt Marvel Comics in the mid-90s. This is the guy who sat on Thor for years and years. He decided he wanted to be the Thor writer and as editor-in-chief nobody could tell him otherwise so he just drove that book into the ground. And now goody-goody he's doing Superboy and further he's working off of a core charted by Scott Lobdell. So I guess it's a credit to the Superman symbol this book managed to last like three years. I do not like Iris Allen or Linda Park. I don't know why The Flash has girl reporter that he eventually marries just like Superman eventually married Lois Lane. Get your own careers, ladies. Quit being wannabe Lois Lane backwash characters. So one thing that both Titans and Superboy had in their favor that Static Shock did not is just the constant crossovers because when they weren't tied into each other, there was a tie-in to Death of the Family in the Batman books or Hell on Earth in the Superman books. Despite feeling very inessential, they were constantly being tied into the fabric of the greater DC universe through the Superman line, the Batman line. Unlike a, a book like Static Shock, they belonged in the DC universe and you get back to the idea of heredity to legacy to estates and inheritances uh, that these were books that didn't necessarily earn their longevity but by association uh, by building off of what was given to them by wonder woman line superman line batman line these books continue where static shock does not and they did some pretty terrible stuff particularly with wonder girl 
how do you root for a heroine that's the daughter of an archaeologist who runs around to all the different countries where they're doing archaeological digs and steals for kicks, essentially? And that's how she ends up getting her powers. It's one of those weird situations, too, where uh, there's a bizarre thing that occurs with Wonder Woman is that she cannibalizes her own supporting cast. Uh, Aquaman does this to a lesser degree. Because Wonder Girl flies, Wonder Woman needs to fly. Because Wonder Girl is the daughter of Zeus, Wonder Woman is the daughter of Zeus. And because Wonder Woman is now the daughter of Zeus, Wonder Girl now suddenly needs a new origin, supposedly. And so she's a thief who steals a magical artifact that gives her this armor that's also cursed. And she's one of the only people who are is capable of controlling this armor and preventing it from committing awful acts and blah, blah, blah. She's this burdened heroine, but she's also not a altruistic one. I can't root for this person. I don't root for these type of people. And it's just a terrible drag that there are people who write comic books that feel like this is what it takes to make somebody cool and edgy. She's a thief. Yeah, she's also a privileged white girl thief. You know, I, I'm not rooting for that. It's more colonialism. It's just a variant on colonialism. Amazing Man appeared in some of the early All-Star Squadron issues that I picked up. Green and yellow are not the most attractive costume colors, but it weirdly kind of works for Amazing Man. I should specify that I'm talking about the Will Everett version that Roy Thomas co-created, I think, with Jerry Ordway or maybe Mike Macklin, who's basically a heroic absorbing man, which makes him theoretically one of the most powerful heroes in the DC Universe. But unfortunately, he was born an African-American, and therefore every incarnation of him gets killed ignominiously. He, he, He should be a baller and they just ax him under the stupidest conditions. I mean, he was killed by the mist in the Starman comics and the intention was that he was going to come back from that and nobody cared enough to actually bring him back. And then weirdly they made him Ving Rhames. Hate it. Awful. Stupid. I liked the character as he was. In the New 52, they introduced a whole new guy, white dude named Rocker Bond, who quite literally is just Absorbing Man in the DC Universe. I think Rocker Bond is a cool character name and I ended up using that character for quite a bit of the Who's Editing Challenge. He kept popping up as one of the soldiers working in one of the European nations during the Baronry conflict. I just like the name. Superhero comics don't tend to be great at romance stuff and there was this one Extreme Justice cover that was drawn by Tom Morgan, I believe, where I don't know if you see Contact because it's still the 90s and uh, racism was even stronger than it is now. Uh, It showed Amazing Man kissing Maxima, which is already the messed up situation because she goes from Superman to Captain Adam to Amazing Man. There's a subtextual commentary there that I'm not entirely comfortable with addressing. Regardless, I really liked that pairing. I thought that was interesting and I, I thought it was a really cool cover and I I liked the way that Tom Morgan drew those characters. There was a weird thing in the mid-90s where DC kept getting these guys that were Marvel scrubs that all drew not only in a Bronze Age Marvel style, but specifically had a strong John Buscema influence. Morgan definitely being among them. He actually clearly influenced by both the Bushima brothers. Also, Maxima has had a green and yellow costume herself. That could have been an interesting coupling. Definitely not what you would expect. Of course, they're extraordinarily powerful. These guys could take on just about anybody on paper and not, unfortunately, comic book paper, but in text paper because in the comic book paper, they always fucking get jobbed. I do wonder sometimes, though, the fact that you've got that cover of Extreme Justice and, like, within a year or so of that happening, that dude 
dude is fucking dead. Again, subtextual commentary there that I'm not comfortable addressing, but I think you see where I'm coming from. Point being, Amazing Man was created specifically to address the lack of African-American superheroes during the golden age of comics or in World War II. And instead of taking advantage of that, instead of seeing that you've got a retcon, but still valuable legacy in place with Amazing Man, they just keep fucking him and they fucking kill every person who has an Amazing Man, who's got black skin and it's bullshit, it's fucked up. And I wish DC would stop doing that shit. But anyway, Superboy goes on for just this long period and it does get tied up pretty heavily into the Harvest stuff. They even do an Harvest origin issue in uh, number 19. Lobdell eventually takes the book back over from Tom DeFalco to tie it in closer to the Titans books again. I guess maybe he was overburdened or he was trying to kick some royalties to uh, his old boss. I don't know. But he takes the book back over again and it goes into a very bizarre direction. It's already hard enough to follow a Superboy that's been divorced from Cadmus that's involved with this nowhere organization and keeps dipping into the Titans books, but despite sharing a writer, doesn't really stick with the Titans books very well or it feels somewhat adjunct to the Titans books. And again, a big part of the whole New 52, this is the remix, this is the remix thing. They bring Dr. Psycho into the Superboy book, but they turn him into something like a Morlock. His personality is different. His look is different aside from being a little person. And I suppose part of the idea is to get some overlap of audiences or to exploit some IP, exploit some IP that isn't being used. You know, you had the Brian Azzarello run on Wonder Woman where he didn't want to use any Wonder Woman concepts for the most part. They just want to draw from mythology and fucking Kirby. So it's like, why are you allowing these properties to uh, lie fallow? Let's throw them into Superboy of all things. Not a big fan of Amazo or Ultron. They strike me as being overly powered villains. I realize that it's a situation where because there's typically one of them, you need to make them powerful enough to where they could incredibly fight an entire grade A superhero team. And they do. And that's one of the reasons why they're recognized uh, among, you know, super villainy circles. But the problem is they always end up getting beaten by some gimmick and it just makes them look lame. Given the potential of characters as powerful as them, it feels like a cheat. And frankly, Amazo specifically he's basically a big elf with his pointy ears and his funky skull cap and his name is Amazo and I know back in the 90s they tried to do the thing where he had the skull face and that didn't work any better I just I, I recognize that his legacy is strong you're never going to be able to get away from having a character named Amazo who fights the Justice League but he's never going to be a favorite of mine because it's just too much of a concept not enough of a character for me but one thing that's interesting with your boy is they decided to pick up a thread from Legion Lost and basically set up the 31st century dissolving to some degree. At some point over the course of this, the Legion book was killed off finally for the first time ever. There was a long period, years long period of there not being a Legion of Superheroes title entirely. And admittedly, the sales on the Titans book, I mean, sorry, the Legion books didn't really necessitate the existence of a Legion title, but they're so an important part of the DC continuity that you feel like it should be there as a a vestigialist element of nothing else. And this ultimately informs uh, the course of my little who's editing experiment in the comments because it becomes increasingly clear that what's wrong with Superboy is kind of wrong with the DC universe, especially as we get into the latter part of the New 52 Superboy run when Justin Jordan was writing it. Jordan was something of a flavor of the month. I think he did the Luther Strode book that uh, made some waves. And I can't recall him doing anything else that really had a major impact in comics or any impact 
impact in comics. But he had his run on Superboy, and he took over midway through a storyline that Marv Wolfman initiated. Yes, they went to Shady Oak's retirement home and supplemented Marv Wolfman's social security benefits for less than a year's worth of Superboy issues. Fucking diddy o dizzy DC. And for a period, he was trying to have Connell become a more normal teenager and try to integrate into 20th century society. And guys like Dr. Psycho kept derailing him. Things get exceptionally weird in Scott Labdell's second Teen Titans annual. The Titans go to one variation on a 30th century future, but there's late 30th century that I believe Harvest is supposed to come from. And then there's the one that Paul Levitz was writing before his book got shit canned. Uh, the thing to note is that the Teen Titans go to the future and Con L interacts with a Superboy that was unlike any we'd seen before. Uh, this was the child of Superman and Lois Lane, Kal El and Lois Lane. And because of the intermingling of human and Kryptonian DNA, this kid suffered from these death-like seizures that made him appear to die. And he appears to die as an infant. Clark and Lois mourn. But at some point, proto-harvest uh, this colonel from the 30th century. I don't know if he's an actual military or like the equivalent of a boogie boy or some shit. He ends up getting this uh, child and taking this child and raising this child as his own in hopes of eventually in some way implanting his own uh, dead son or disabled son into the body of this version of Superboy, although that never occurs. But he does raise him as his own son, so he's a bigot and uh, he runs around and kills a bunch of superheroes. I think he's fated to come back to the 20th century to kill a bunch of the heroes from that time period. Sorry, 21st. I'm an old man. I'm still thinking 20th century terms. We are currently in the 21st century by a span of 21 fucking years. So you'd think I'd have adjusted by now, but unfortunately I haven't. So anyhow, in this 30th century, Con L and this version of Superboy uh, dubbed Jonathan Lane Kent Spore, Con L ultimately essentially fucking kills this dude, but then he gets dragged into an action comics annual or some shit and he's no longer part of the ongoing continuity. <sighs> And so the Titans find what was left of Jonathan Lane Kent. He'd been impaled on metal and he was bleeding out and shit. And so they assume that this is the same guy as Con L. And so they bring him in, they heal him up, and he becomes a member of the Teen Titans. And they all go back to the 21st century. And so this kid who's pretending to be Con L is uh, the Manchurian superhuman, I guess. The idea is that within the next few years, he's going to kill off a bunch of metahumans. But in the meantime, he's trying to pretend to be who he is not, Con L and having adventures with the Teen Titans, getting involved with, I believe, either Star or Cadmus, I can't remember at this point. Marv Wolfen wrote the, that guy's story beginning with, I believe, the 26th issue of the New 52 Superboy series. Around issue 30, Aaron Cooter took over, a nice artist, not particularly well known as a writer, but having skimmed through those issues as a writer artist, not too bad. So by this point, the Superboy Solid series is not long of this world. Superboy is hanging out with the science action team, whoever's sponsoring them. It's a bunch of scientists plus a new african-american guardian the superboy gets his right eye gouged out by ravager he eventually finds the body of i think connell and stasis but there's also this multiplicity of superboys from across all dimensions i don't recall if they were clones or older dimensional or what but just just generally getting way the fuck out of hand and there's just dozens and dozens of superboys running around blowing shit up and fighting each other and stuff so the new 52 superboy volume lasts 34 issues and in the 
the end, you have a bunch of Superboys against a bunch of other Superboys. Uh, one particularly evil Superboy in particular fighting a good Superboy. I want to say that they were both incarnations of Jonathan Lane Kent. Uh, they both appear to die by the end of the series. And there's the affirmation that Connell is the one surviving Superboy, which of course is not the case. And just this multiplicity of Superboys ultimately informs the entire direction of the comments game on who's editing. Just so much going on there that I felt like that needed to be addressed. And it informed a meta text that was formulating my brain about the importance of the existence of Superboy to the DC universe. I'm legitimately shocked that I haven't gotten around to talking about Ambush Bug yet. I adore the character. I started reading his stuff with the Son of the Ambush Bug miniseries, which is probably the least accessible thing that Ambush Bug was ever a part of. And it was that weirdness and that ill-applied grit and obtuseness of that book that actually intrigued me. I've talked in the past about how Alan Moore, reading his stuff when I was too young to do so, I just fell out of my depth and I never really found my place with Alan Moore, whereas Keith Giffen is another guy who's a very challenging creator and has definitely had some commercial hits, but also a fuck ton of misses. Um, But I'm just weirdly drawn to his work, especially in the Jose Munoz period, uh, which is largely when he was doing Ambush Bug, the, the classic stuff. I, I love the sense of humor. I love the collaboration with Robert Norlorn Fleming. I, I love this character that just points out the idiocy and the, audace, the audacity of comic books and exists outside of comics and breaks the fourth wall to discuss them with the reader. And it's all sort of hand-waved away by his being insane. Absolutely, Deadpool is an enormous fucking ripoff of the character and to a lesser degree, Harley Quinn is. I love the teleportation. I love the fact that he's basically a combination of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. I don't care for anybody really using the character besides Keith Giffen working with Robert Orton Fleming. That's the only Ambush Bug that I really want to have any involvement in. I've tried to read other stuff that featured Ambush Bug, even stuff that Keith Giffen wrote for other artists and it just never works. The only time in which book works for me is when it's Keith and Robert Loring Fleming together. But because that was an unlikely thing to have happen since Robert Loring Fleming hasn't consistently written comic books in a long time. I think the last thing he did was the revival of Ambush Bug that ended up at loggerheads with DC publisher Dan Didio to the point where the series was finished by another creative team. Keith Giffen completely disowned it. Points have to be given to Keith Giffen. That guy's a fucking baller. He's a dude who just gets knocked around and gets back up and, and pats himself down and he's a guy who just has an amazing capacity of not giving a fuck even after he's been fucked with so damn much while also clearly being a curmudgeon and not the most optimistic enthusiastic creator and yet he just keeps on chugging along he keeps working with people that have fucked him over or you know hassled him in various ways for the longest time I thought that the person fucking with Giffen in the Superman office during all the hubbub with the one year later Legion of Superheroes was Mike Carlin and it turns out this whole time it was Dan fucking Jurgens, and he worked with Dan Jurgens closely on all the um, Future's End stories and I think also some other works as well uh, the fact that Keith Giffen can you know say bygones and actually continue to produce with people who have been total assholes to him is just amazing but it also helps explain why he's such a fucking pissy individual as well so for the comment challenge just as a random thing I figured okay well if you're going to do Ambush Bug in modern times, what are you going to do? You're going to try to uh, claw back some of the stuff that uh, was given over to Deadpool. Uh, part of what made Deadpool go over in a way that Ambush Bug never did was the ultra violence, that he's like a bad
badass with his guns and he fights other mutant characters and he gets drawn by Rob Liefeld and all that kind of shit. And so I figured, well, if you're going to try to bring Ambush Bug back, it probably should be Orange Schwab because that's a character that wouldn't have played in the Didio period, which was still in effect when Cisco's thing was getting started. So I'm like, okay, well, we'll make him an African-American character. We'll have him gun-toting. We'll get him tied into Task Force X. But he'll still have this absurdist quality and we'll keep Orange Schwab in the book by having him be this voice inside of the assassin's head who's you know basically fucking with his rhythm messing with his mojo and of course sending him off on gonzo adventures traveling across space and time uh, mucking around with his teleportation abilities tying him into the monarch story ambush bugs worked well within the context of the challenge and so i've been able to keep generating material featuring that character and because i have a lot of love for ambush bug and i my creative team involves jm Mateus, so you've got a little bit more of that vaudevillian quality that you had with jli versus the somewhat more satirical quality that Robert Lauren Fleming brought. You can actually do something that's a little more continuity driven with a J.M. Demetrius as a scripter where with Fleming, I think they would necessarily go off the rails. I've had some fun with that. It's not my ambush bug. It's not the book that I would want to see written. It's not a book that I would buy. But within the context of the challenge, I've enjoyed writing this mercenary type character who happens to have a lot of the craziness associated with ambush bug. And of course, a lot of fourth wall breaking blurbs for the issues of that particular series. So Black Zero, the evil clone of Connell, aka Connor Kent, aka the clone of Superman and Lex Luthor. Nope, pass. Hard pass. The Ancients, we think also have some other extended version of the name. These are characters that were introduced during the Joe Kelly, Doug Monkey run on JLA. That's officially the run in which JLA jumps the shark. I think some people had issues with the Mark Wade, Brian Hitch run, but there was a lot of stellar material produced during that run that I think was on a par with what Morrison and Porter were doing on the run. But nothing that Kelly and Monk did ever compared to the previous runs of the book, it, it they definitely ran that book into the ground. They helped to cancel what had been a flagship title for DC in the late 90s into the 2000s. The idea of this ancient team of superhuman beings who would fight the JLA in the year 1004 BC, it's intriguing. But I remember reading that story arc. You're creating a bunch of characters that can actually take on the JLA to some degree, despite the fact they should not be able to do that. I guess the whole magical thing is what kind of propels that. But you have this one big bad fight with a JLA and then you really can't use them again. I guess that's okay with the context of JLA because it's a book that is somewhat defined by trying to keep upping the ante in a Tex Avery sort of way where at some point you just by necessity are going to go off the rails, good intentions or not. I, I don't have a problem with the concept of the ancients but in execution they didn't do much for me in design they didn't do much for me and uh, it's one of those deals where if they hadn't gotten a Secret Files and Origins entry I think that most people would have forgotten about them by now and let's be honest in truth, everybody pretty much has regardless of that. So as I previously mentioned, the initial plan, well not the initial plan, that gives me too much credit for planning ahead. The early plan was for the Who's Editing Challenge to lead toward an integrated DC universe that would include, you know, Milestone, Vertigo, Wildstorm, yada yada. And I decided that early on, and so I made a point of not including any Wildstorm property specifically in those early editions with the expectation that I would build towards the Wildstorm integration. Over time, the plans changed, and I 
realized that I went from working towards Wildstorm to having a finite amount of time in which to play with Wildstorm. And the closer I got to that final deadline, the more hot I was to try to incorporate as much Wildstorm ephemera as possible. I wanted to get as obscure as possible and be as comprehensive as possible because so much Wildstorm material, being this bastard stepchild of DC Comics, have fallen by the wayside and been forgotten. Generally speaking, I tried to avoid anything that was creator-owned because that sort of defeats the purpose. A creator-owned project could potentially turn up someplace else. We've seen, say, for instance, the monolith, uh, which was created by Palmiotti, Gray, and Phil Winslade, moved from DC Comics to Dark Horse, I believe, or maybe Image Comics. Obviously, Peter David's Dark Angel moved to IDW, although I still played around with that because in my skewed continuity, Dark Angel was never creator-owned. Dark Angel was a spin-off continuation of Supergirl, uh, where it seemed to have its origins anyway. But I did make the exception for J. Scott Campbell's Wildsiders, mostly because the effort had such a small run. Uh, the series was never finished. Only two complete issues were ever released, plus a zero issue. J. Scott Campbell is inextricably tied to Gen 13 and Wildstorm. And so when you've got a property that was by him that seems to be playing in those same fields of teenage heroes and such, it just felt right to include them in the Ravager story where all of those Gen 13 and DV8 characters were in Africa controlled by nowhere. So might as well throw the Wildsiders in there as well. But it was actually tripped over. Basically, I decided to have a little bit of fun with the animal characters, particularly in volume 13, since it featured literally a legion of super pets uh, that included Little Cheese, Crypto, the actual team itself. So that'd be fun to actually do some sort of a crossover involving the Alley Cat Abra book and to try to farm that out as much as possible, since by the 13th volume, I was trying to either shit or get off the pot, essentially. Either I'm going to keep running this particular series or that's a good month to start canceling as much stuff as possible. And because I wanted to make sure to exploit Wildstorm as much as possible, I was looking around specifically for any Wildstorm properties that had anything to do with animal-themed characters. And so Wildsiders, this J. Scott Campbell book in which teens and not that old of a scientist would use these holographic hard light constructs to become amplified in animalistic ways. You know, dragonfly wings, cheetah legs, T-Rex head, that sort of thing. I think the most notable thing about it is that clearly one of the characters was based on Jack Black from the band Tenacious D. But since so little came of it and will it ever come of it, it just made sense to tie them into the animal crossover. Andromeda is one of those characters that was introduced in the five-year-later Legion because all the Superman family characters have been stripped away from usage in that story arc, and so they reintroduced them as proxy characters, Andromeda is Supergirl. But in trying to help differentiate her, and uh, in part by making her Daxamite, they introduced this strain of xenophobia that's present in Daxamites that was interesting, playing with a character who's sort of an Aryan-looking person who is averse to interacting with other alien species yet they're supposed to be a heroic character and so you're seeing her try to evolve and be a better heroine and be more accepting of different people different lifestyles different cultures species what have you and then at one point in the Archie period there was a genocidal act committed by Daxamites that so repulsed Andromeda that she ended up becoming she went into a nunnery essentially she became Sister Andromeda definitely they went to some interesting weird unusual places 
places with Andromeda that you couldn't have not have done with Supergirl. I do like the character and I like that they went to those places. It was definitely some of the more interesting stuff that occurred during the Archie Legion. Uh, so I, even though there isn't a lot of necessity for that character to exist, especially when you in a universe that has a Supergirl and a Power Girl already, I still kind of root for her to have appearances and to do stuff because she found a way of validating her existence beyond just being a proxy for Supergirl. I also found another book called Wild Girl about a teenage Latina runaway who taps into a field that allows her to communicate with all the beasts of the wild, animals, dogs, that sort of thing. She's babysitting her infant brother when she has an episode where she passes out and uh, the artist would do these cool little painted interludes where she's connecting to the morphogenetic field or whatever you want to call it, the same kind of shit that Buddy Baker would tie into. And she fought this one dude that wore like dog skins as an outfit and the guy ends up beating her mom and kidnapping the infant baby and the runaway ends up coming back home to save her infant brother but by the time she's done with her adventure she uh it, it remains a runaway because she's like a wild child at this point uh she chooses to be feral and live out in the wild with animals she has a canine sidekick that works with her um at one point she kills sobek the egyptian crocodile deity which made it obvious that i would want to tie that into 52 and the black marvel family that miniseries was by liam moore daughter of Alan, John Rapian, and drawn by Sean McManus. Nothing ever came of it, and it actually is owned by DC Comics, so it'd be kind of a funny thing to play with for somebody at some point in time. But, you know, so many of the Wildstorm properties, I don't know if there's some sort of rights issues where maybe the creators continue to have participation, but DC never seems to exploit any of those properties. I'm a Wonder Woman fan, but really mostly post-crisis and a great emphasis on the run of William Messner Loeb specifically. I'm also a big fan of the Mike Sikowski run back in the 60s, but a lot of the more mainstream, consistent Wonder Woman stories with her being a superhero type character, I don't really gravitate towards. So I have trouble defending the Angleman, a person powered by, I guess, math and a protractor. I liked it when they tried to play him as a con man and who has an angle rather than a guy who literally runs around and blasts stuff with something a kid would have in grade school to draw and you know measure I guess I, I struggle to take the angle man in any way seriously I just can't he's too much of a freaking goof he's very much that silver age Jack Schiff era Batman villain I'm not not somebody I really care for being in the Wonder Woman Rose Gallery I acknowledge him because he made a lot of appearances they kept using him and I think that the fact they kept using him was detrimental to Wonder Woman as a character just made her look like more and more of a loser every time Engelman popped up and I think the most recently when Phil Jimenez was using the character he tried to set him up as somebody who fights Wonder Girl Troya I don't think I was doing her any favors My world is your world. People like to hear their names. I'm no exception. Please call my name. We think you're special. 21st Century Boys. 1996. Dr. Ange. Between the Pages Blog. Canoes. Celso Ventura. Chris Lytton. Dave's Comic Heroes Blog. Ed Moore. El Romero Mero. Freddie Atkins. The Hammer Strikes. Random Deke. E Stuff. History of Comics on Film. Iowa's Joe is. Jeffrey Brown. JMT Prod. John Kiala. 
Camilla Mullinge, John from Married Watching Cartoons Podcast, KSCGSF Podcast, Keith G. Baker, M.M.Beats, Martin Gray, My Kids and Aliens to Me, Mitt Ruffin X Fields, Resurrections, An Adam Warlick and Thonnell's Podcast, Richard Field, Rob Steger, Ronald Clark, Sean McLaughlin, Sean Phillips, Siskoid, Spaterno Vilches, Talk Nerdy to Me, Tim Price, The Podcrasher, Titanobra 74, Torah, Ward Hill Terry, Wayne Burroughs, and Wibbly Wobbly Dicey YCRPG Podcast, of the Batman Movie Episode, Jeffrey Brown wrote, I want to hear this, Ward Hill Terry proclaimed, only Batman movie I've seen in 30 years is Lego Batman, I like that, Siskoid announced, and to the nerds who cry why always dark, I will point them to Lego Batman, and the upcoming Super Pets, it's not live action but it doesn't count any less, Jeffrey later continued, and I'm slowly trying to get back into DC stuff, but gravitating to stuff like Doom Patrol still CW Batwoman, I have been rewatching Zero Three Teen Titans cartoon I finally got on DVD, I have so many good memories from this show, Superman and Damp, Lois, I haven't seen Peacemaker only in clips, and Aquaman 2 is another movie I'm skeptical about, because I like what saw in the first movie where they play up the surfer bro beefcake comedy, but what made that movie bad for me was how Black Manta should have been the main bad guy, not Ocean Master. These DCEU movies have kinda done the various founding members of the Legion of Doom, like Black Manta, Cheetah, Lex Luthor very badly. I know I brought up the Legion of Doom from Challenge of the Super Friends, but I feel like we are never going to see that, maybe in Peacemaker. I liked your review of the movie I haven't seen yet, but I'm going to wait to get it on DVD out of morbid curiosity and damp. All the hype around this film I have been seeing on Twitter. I'm still burned on Batman stuff since Snyder fucked up the character in his movies turned me off. And I'm hoping Wonder Woman's third movie is going to be anything better than whatever WW84 was trying to be. That movie disappointed me so and damp. Just stuff about Gal Gadot that still bothers me from her military work before acting. I'm conflicted on that end of the DCEU I'm skeptical about Black Adam, if it's going to be a draw for me or not. He's a character I am not into, but I'm aware of by way of JSA in the double loss. The Flash movie is another I'm skeptical about. I don't like Ezra Miller for what they did strangling a fan among other things. 1996 chided, laugh my ass off, strangled. He would have literally been prosecuted if he was actually doing that. The preceding program is a non-profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials contained therein are believed borrowed under fair use with no copyright infringement intended. Please feel free to leave comments at Rollspine's Productions WordPress blog. You can also send us Twitter comments through the Rollspine Podcast Twitter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>